You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Probably get started. I think some more people will probably um, come in as, as the event progresses. Um, so thank you everyone for coming. Um, my name is Caroline Harper. I'm the a Principal Research Fellow here at ODI and I'm Head of the Gender Equality and Social Inclusion Programme. Um, we're delighted to have our panellists here today. Uh, so before we get started though, I will draw your attention to if the hashtags for tweeting which are on the screen here, hashtag gender norms. Um, and you can follow Tweets Live at the Align platform and at ODI Dev. Um, and apart from everyone in the room here, um, I also want to welcome our online audience. Uh, we have 306 sign-ups, um, which is pretty impressive even for ODI. Um, and we also know from our monitoring of um, people who sign up online that uh, the vast majority of them actually do attend, and many of them stay for the whole event. So welcome everyone online. We know there are people online from India, Nigeria, Rwanda, USA. Uh, thank you for getting up early or for staying up late, um, and we hope you uh, enjoy the event. Um, so we're delighted um, to welcome here our panel of speakers. Um, and The Lancet as our co-hosts. Um, we'll be discussing gender norms in the health sector. And by norms, we mean the often unspoken rules of behaviors and attitudes, which can be damaging to health outcomes as well as many other areas of our life. So gendered social norms affect the health and well-being of women and men, girls and boys, in many different ways from exposure to health risks, to the prioritization of health needs and the Im impact on access to healthcare. Um, norms on mobility and exercising in public spaces, for example, undermines opportunities for girls and women to improve their own health. Norms that require men and boys to appear strong and demonstrate masculine behavior can leave them reluctant to seek help for physical or mental health problems. Norms influence the investment um, in health priorities and prevention, such as reducing maternal mortality or sexually transmitted diseases. And the public health community has spearheaded a growing recognition of the impact of norms on health and the use of social norm change strategies to change behavior to support better health outcomes. So the panel we have today will discuss the impact gender norms have on health provision and the access and, sh and share their experiences of barriers and progress to improving healthcare globally. Um, so we'll share some insights and case studies before we have a broader discussion on gender norm change. I'd like to draw your attention to a number of publications. First and foremost, this Lancet publication on gender equality norms and health. Several of the panelists contributed to this publication, including myself, but I think pretty much everyone here um, also reviewed papers um, it was a long but incredibly interesting and engaging process, um, about two and a half years. I think there's 70 authors on this, um, engaging people from all around the world in thinking about gender norms and health. And we will hear about that from um, especially our two panelists here. 
um, and be talking about it later. And I would also like to draw attention to the Align platform. You have a leaflet on your chair. Um, this is a platform on advancing learning and innovation on gender norms. It's cross-sectoral, so we're, we don't just look at health, we look at economic empowerment, sexuality, all different types of issues. Um, it's a, it has a big online community. Um, the health practitioners are very active on that platform as well. We have a guide, Gender Norms and Health, which is downloadable from the platform, and there's a few copies outside. And I'll also, you already have that, and draw your attention to um, Gender Worker ODI in general. Adverts over. Um, so, um, yeah, we will be opening up, we'll hear from our panellists, then we'll open up the floor for discussion, and I will also be taking online questions. Um, so if you're watching online and you think of a question that you want to ask anyone on the panel, please do send it in, um, and it will be sent to me, and I'll try and get through as many as I can. Um, so I'll just uh, introduce um, our panel. Um, so we have Richard Horton, who's editor in chief of The Lancet, um, Sarah Hawkes, who's from uh, University College London and professor of global public health, um, Veronica Mager, who's the um, associate director for gender equity and human rights mainstreaming um, at the World Health Organization at the end here, and Olivia Burns, sitting next to me, who's the associate director of communications at at Prostate Cancer UK. Um, I'll give a little more introduction as they speak. Um, but we're going to start with Richard. Um, thank you so much for coming to speak to us today and to speak to our global audience. Um, Richard's uh, editor-in-chief of the global journal on health, The Lancet, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with. Um, He's held many, many eminent positions. Um, most recently, he was awarded WHO Director General's Health Leaders Award for Outstanding Leadership in Global Health and the Rue Prize in Recognition of Innovation in the Application of Global Health Evidence. Um, and he'll be speaking to this special issue on norms and also on The Lancet and its strategy for engaging um, a wide audience globally. Thank you, Richard. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Caroline. Welcome, everybody. It's uh, wonderful to be here and wonderful to be partnering with the Overseas Development Institute. Uh, <clears throat> I want to uh, tell a story about the evolution of gender and global health, uh, which has most definitely not been a straight line. And uh, I want to tell that story a little bit of how we got to where we are today and where we might be going in the future. Last month, in Nairobi uh, marked 25 years since 179 countries uh, endorsed the landmark program of action of the International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo. Uh, that was truly a landmark event in the history of gender and health. But there have been other critically important turning points that I think are worth um, briefly mentioning. For me, a massive turning point, and I think it was a, um, a remarkable occasion to be present at, was in 2000 uh, in Durban, which was in many ways the birth of the modern era in global health. It was the International AIDS Conference that took place in South Africa. Nelson Mandela was there to uh, preside over the event. It was 
entitled Breaking the Silence. And indeed, it was breaking the silence because it was a pivotal moment where the AIDS response changed. And it changed with a very strong gender dimension. Uh, the understanding, the recognition that AIDS was devastating the continent of sub-Saharan Africa and that heterosexual transmission was driving that epidemic was a key moment in changing the AIDS response, which has been with ups and downs for sure, but has been one of the most remarkable responses to any epidemic um, in the history of humanity. That was a key moment when a harmful gender norm, the failure to recognize heterosexual transmission and the impact of AIDS on women, um, was broken. In the Millennium Development Goal era, a second turning point, um, we saw the struggle for the inclusion and sustaining uh, sustainability of the idea of reproductive health and rights in the Millennium Development Goals. Initially invisible, not included in the MDGs, eventually a reproductive health goal was included in MDG 5, but it remained a constant struggle to keep uh, sexual reproductive health and rights on the agenda. In the SDG era, a third turning point since Cairo, that is really what the series of papers in front of you has sought to address. What can we hope for um, with gender and health in the era of the SDGs? The principal argument of the series is very straightforward, that indeed we live at a time where there are many opportunities to improve health, but none of these opportunities can be fully achieved, let alone sustained, without achieving progress on gender equality. And we are facing today a conservative backlash against women, against the rights of women that is threatening the gains that we have made for health and certainly possible future gains, whether we're talking about the global gag to restrictions on safe abortion. We are living at a moment that can be fairly summed up as a political cold war against women. And this series sets out to slay many myths about gender and health that affect that and indeed afflict that Cold War. The idea that gender does not, does not influence health outcomes. Gender does influence health outcomes. The myth that views about gender cannot be changed. They can be changed. And the idea of gender as somehow this elusive concept that cannot be measured. It isn't an elusive concept and it most definitely can be measured. The series sets out some very important facts. The health system and healthcare delivery more broadly neglects, indeed it reinforces, gender inequalities in health by privileging cure over care. Governments and health institutions have persistently failed to make progress on gender and health. Gender mainstreaming 
its theory, its architecture, and even its results, has failed to deliver on many of the hopes that were invested in it. Health research and data collection are too often gender blind. The space for civil society action on gender and health is remarkably, strikingly shrinking. Corporate interests manipulate, often manipulate, gender for profit. Gender and attitudes to gender affect health over the whole of the life course. Gender and other inequalities, class, ethnicity, ability, age, all intersect and amplify their negative effects on health. We have repeatedly missed opportunities to engage the health sector and the health system in gender transformative strategies to improve health. Women and men experience different exposures to disease and risk factors. And laws, policies, and programs can indeed improve gender equality and health. We move on from some of these facts that need to be much more firmly underlined to a set of recommendations, which can very simply be summed up in one sentence, and that is, we need to disrupt the system. We need to focus more on health outcomes, reforming the workplace and the workforce, filling gaps in data, investing in civil society, strengthening independent accountability, increasing the visibility of women in leadership roles, valuing care roles, addressing sexual harassment and abuse in society, and fundamentally, addressing authority and power with this lens in the health system. The barriers to recognizing these facts and implementing these recommendations are not technical. The barriers are political. And the reforms that the series calls for will not be comfortable. But now is one of those special moments, like Cairo, like Durban in 2000, like the MDG era, and like the initiation of the Sustainable Development Goals. It is an era where this concept of sustainable development gives us an opportunity to rethink the relation between gender and health. Now, you might ask, why on earth is The Lancet, a medical journal, getting involved in this issue? But we've been on a journey, too. In the Millennium Development Goal era, that journey began in a fairly conventional way with a focus that we had, particularly around maternal and reproductive health. But then we had a moment where we saw the potential of science, evidence, the research community, and indeed health workers worldwide could work together to be instruments to trigger and accelerate social and indeed political action to address issues, urgent issues in health. We wanted to reinvent ourselves with a different role for a medical journal, not as a mirror held up to medicine, but as a much more active participant, bringing scientists around 
the table, the very best in the world, gathering the best evidence and using that evidence as this political instrument. We started with a, with a commission led by the remarkable Anna Langer in 2015 on women and health, not women's health, but actually women and health, about women's political, economic and social contributions to health and society. Moving on in 2016 to series on transgender health and applying a gender lens to women's cancers. In 2018, trying to rewrite a manifesto for sexual reproductive health and rights for the SDG era. And then this year, the beginning of 2019, publishing a special issue advancing women in science, medicine, and global health, and then this series on gender equality, norms, and health. And in the future, we want to try and draw these many threads together in a new commission on gender and health, co-chair of which is sitting on the panel, Sarah Hawkes here, who is going to be leading that initiative for us over the next few years. Our overall objective, if I had to sum it up, is to use The Lancet as a way to repoliticize health and the debate about health. And gender inequity, and of course I also have to say along with the climate emergency, is the greatest crisis facing the future of health that we face. But we are optimistic, and if you read this series, you too will be optimistic that evidence, science, and the health community worldwide can catalyze the kind of social transformation that this series envisions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, obviously, store up your questions on anything that Richard has said, um, and we'll, we'll take them at the end of, of the whole panel discussion. So I'm going to turn to Sarah. Um, Sarah's the director uh, of the Centre um, <clears throat> for Gender and Global Health at um, University College London, and she's Professor of Global Public Health there as well. Um, she's also an author on the Lancet series, um, and as you've heard, will be co-chair of a new series. Um, and, um, and she has a background in sociology and in public health, which um, is a great combination of qualifications to speak about gender norms. Um, so I will pass over to you. Well, you um, I think we're going to have the panel sitting down because the camera Perfect. is focused. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> She'll relax back. <laughs> um, thank you, Caroline, and thank you, Richard. I, I, it's, it's always hard to, to try and follow Richard um, <laughs> and maintain the enthusiasm that you, you bring to almost any subject, but particularly to, to gender, I've, I've, I've noticed. But... Um, I, I just want to touch on three points um, over the next uh, few minutes that, that kind of um, expand a little bit on what Richard has been uh, talking about and then reflect a little bit more on, on some of the content of the series. So I, I was asked to, to kind of summarise the conceptual framework of, of the series. And for those of you that um, have recently 
done any kind of academic degree, you'll know that conceptual frameworks are incredibly important to anybody who's embedded in academia. So we all get really, really excited about the idea that there's a new conceptual framework out there in the literature and force our students to look at it. Um, so I, I'm not going to force any of you to, to, to read the, the, the nitty-gritty of the, of the conceptual framework. But reflecting back on it, I think for me what, what the conceptual framework manages to do really, really clearly is show that gender is absolutely integral to the health of everybody. The, the, the conceptual framework really um, encapsulates notions and ideas that gender is something that it, it will first, first of all, that gender is, as we've heard, not just a social construct, but also a political construct. It's an economic construct, it's a legal construct, it's embedded in all of the institutions and organizations that we interact with from the moment of birth to the moment of death. And so every, every aspect of all of our lives is embedded within and influenced by the gendered nature of institutions and organizations that we will come into contact with, whether that's our families or legal systems or education systems or health systems. And the conceptual framework really hammers home the point that as a social construct and a political construct, etc., that gender is therefore something that can be, that is mutable, it, it's flexible, it's not fixed in stone, and it changes over the life course in each and every one of us. The conceptual framework also reminds us that gender is embedded in notions of power and privilege, um, and, and I think we heard that incredibly beautifully articulated by Richard just now, that, that it's, it's the threat to power and privilege that tends to, to, um, to, to foster the kinds of backlashes that we are seeing in the world now, not, not just in the, the leadership that's currently represented within our own city with the multitude of men that are, are here representing powerful nations, um, not very far away from us right now today. But in, in many parts of the world where there is a backlash against notions of, of, achieving, in, of achieving equality on the basis of, of gender. The conceptual framework also reminds us that gender is distinct from but interacts with biological sex. And for those of us that, that work in gender and health, one of the things that becomes very clear very quickly if you pick up almost any edition of The Lancet except for this one, or any other medical journal <laughs> that, that, that may also be available to consumers out there, that there's a great misunderstanding even amongst people working in health and medicine about the differences and the overlaps between gender and sex. And so we've, for example, been working with one of Richard's colleagues to try to, to, to capture how many people publishing papers in gender and health 
actually understand the difference between gender and sex. And it's remarkably few, despite many guidelines that are in existence, many rules and policies, that notion that gender and sex are somehow the same thing is something that a lot of people leave public health school, medical school, with a misunderstanding of these fundamental concepts of, of gender and sex. So the conceptual framework really reminds us that these are distinct but interlinked categories. The conceptual framework also, of course, reminds us that, that gender is something that, that we have over the lifetime, that it's not a binary concept, that it exists on a spectrum. And I think for me, that you know, if there's one take-home message that I'd really want everybody to, to, to walk away with is that gender is something that all of us possess. It's not something unique to 50% of the population, which is how it's often framed, not just in the health system, but more widely, that gender is something that's about women, that gender is women's business, that gender equality is women's business, that the fight for equality is something that women need to be responsible for, and the fight for good health is, that, is something that women need to be responsible for. So the, the conceptual framework manages, I think, very beautifully to bring all of those notions together and really captures the, 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 the ideas and the, the history of, of not just um, the health literature, but the feminist literature, the, the, gen, the gender literature, into one, I must say, very beautiful diagram. I'm not sure who was responsible for pulling the diagram together, but it, it's a very beautifully set out diagram that captures those very complex and some t somewhat contested notions into a, into a framework that I think is going to be extremely useful, not just for academic audiences, but for people concerned with policies and programs and shifting the dial on gender norms moving forward. So the, the second part, and I'll just quickly move on to, through the other two parts that I was asked to, to, to focus on. Second part is, so what do we do about it? And you've heard a, a, a bit about what we do about it, which um, Richard captured in relation to paper five in the series, which is, for me, the, I think one of, one of the messages that's coming through, what, what paper five is saying when, when it's talking about health outcomes, is that health in many ways, when we talk about gender and health, health is, is a less threatening entry point for many people to start talking about gender and gender inequalities and gender equality and gender as it affects everybody than, for example, when we start talking about political power and the need to have sharing and parity and equality and equity and political power. It's a very threatening concept. When we're talking about health outcomes, we're talking about something that most people hold dear to themselves and their families. And if they think about the relationship between gender and their family's health outcomes, it becomes something that they start to become concerned about. The second point that, that the... the, the um, the, the paper five talks about is about the, what we can do as a health community to reform our own workplaces. That we operate within incredibly gender unequal systems within the health, public health, and dare I say it, development sectors. That these are gendered 
systems and therefore are unequal systems. And until we recognise the inequalities within our own workplaces and put into place the policies and programmes to ensure equality of opportunity for everybody within the workplace, then we are going to continue to maintain unjust systems that um, perpetuate inequalities of power and privilege. And the third thing that, that Paper 5 calls, calls for is uh, the elimination of gender bias in research. And, and I think there's been a lot more discourse in the public space, potentially as a result of this series, but kind of building on, on a, a lot more understanding of not just the inequalities of, of, of the health workforce itself, but the inequalities that have taken place up till now in how medical and health <coughs> research has been conducted, from the exclusion of women from clinical trials, for example, to the notion that, I mean, it's something that's been in inherent since the time of Aristotle, that the, the body, the, the notion of the body is a masculine body. If you look at the way the ancient Greeks wrote about what constitutes a body, it's a masculine form. And if you look at medical textbooks today, the majority of pictures in medical textbooks are of masculine bodies still today. So we, we still operate with, within inherently um, biased and unequal health research systems. And so Paper 5 calls for reform of that. Just one last thing, <laughs> which is the, the third thing I was asked to talk about is, so, is about what, what, what we're doing, which, which is something that's mentioned in Paper 5, that's about holding a lens to the global health community, holding up a kind of gender lens, a, a gender mirror to the global health community as a system, as an independent system of accountability. So we've established a, um, an independent monitoring initiative that we called Global Health 5050, um, or that is called Global Health 5050, that monitors um, gender inequalities within 200 organizations active in the global health space. And we, we do an annual report looking at how gender is addressed both internally in the workforce of those organizations and externally in what those organizations are delivering in terms of policies and programs. And I have to say that, the, that what really strikes me after three years of doing this now is that it's actually, it's relatively easy to kickstart conversations about inequalities in the workplace and to think that if you achieve parity at the leadership level that somehow you have achieved a gender equal workforce. And I'd really like to, to sort of, for everybody to reflect back as to whether that's really, whether parity is the same as equality is one message. But the second message is that when we talk about gender outside of our own workplaces, when we talk about gender as it is delivered through policies and programs and products, that's a much more difficult conversation for people to engage with. That, that what we have seen essentially in the 200 organizations we look at 
is that global health organizations are stuck in the era of the MDGs. They are still talking about gender as it relates to women's reproduction and the health of children. They are not able to see gender as it relates to the health of the entire population. And that from, for, from our perspective, the, the big challenge is how we move from an MDG focus on women's reproductive health to an SDG focusing on the health of absolutely everybody in the population with a gendered lens to the work that they're doing. For us, that, that's the big challenge arising from the data that, that, that we see every year. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sarah um, and Sarah mentioned that I think it's on page 14 is your picture the conceptual framework if you're interested um, so Sarah's started the conversation about what do we do to address this and we now have two speakers who will talk a little bit about indeed the institutional space and also the the, um, the more campaigning activist space um, in terms of um, approaches to tackling gender norms so we'll start with Olivia um, she's uh, the Associate Director of Communications at Prostate Cancer and she's led the charity through the development and adoption of a bold rebrand re re um, that put the most common cancer in men's radar. Um, and so um, I think you've just had a national campaign, Men We Are With You, in the summer of, of 2019. So I'm going to pass on to you to talk a little bit. We've chosen just sort of one of the issues around gender norms, um, because there are many, many, um, but we're talking about men, um, and in this case, prostate cancer. So. Yeah. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be part of this um, panel today. Um, so I'm going to talk to you a bit about how Prostate Cancer UK has really systematically tried to break down some of these harmful uh, gender norms in the work that we've done um, in the hope that men can engage with prostate cancer um, more easily. So eight years ago, prostate cancer was a disease that nobody talked about. And despite being the most common cancer in men and it killing nearly as many, or it now kills more, many, more men than breast cancer does kill um, women, um, nobody talked about it and there was a cloak of invisibility around the disease. Um, it le le can leave men impotent and um, incontinent and there was a, a great taboo around the subject. And the prostate cancer charity, as we were known back then, um, was we found perpetuating some of the problems and we were part of the cause of why people weren't talking about it. We were distant, we were indirect, we were patriarchal in the communications that we put out. Uh, we were very apologetic and critically we bypassed <coughs> men and tried to, uh, in favour of speaking to women um, about nagging their husbands to go to the doctor. Um, by interrogating what we were doing and by speaking to men and speaking to men uh, with prostate cancer and without prostate cancer, we realised that we needed to dramatically change our approach. So we set out to give men agency in their own health. So with an unashamedly bold identity, which you can see on the walls and on the screens, um, we launched this new brand and helped propel prostate cancer into the public consciousness. And without question, our very single-minded um, marketing strategy that focused um, going, to men, going to where men were on their own turf and speaking and communicating with men directly, we've really kind of changed the, 
the conversation. So we were direct, we were, conver we were conversational, we went to the football, we went to the pub, and we went to the golf course. And in eight years, our brand awareness has soared from 7% to 61%. And men that you can see up here now, these are Premier League uh, managers, are wearing our badge, our Man of Men badge with pride, day in and day out at, on weekend uh, primetime TV. And so we've definitely taken prostate cancer out of the shadows. But we did always know that this strategy was only going to take us so far. And with limited funds, it was absolutely the right strategy to get us to where we are. But we knew that if, we weren't, um, if men weren't down the pub and they weren't at the football pitch, well, how are we going to engage with them? So we knew that we needed to reflect and think about what we were going to do next. So we refined our approach. So over the last couple of years, we've been researching about how people perceive our brand, how people um, understand the way in which uh, we should be communicating with them, and really identified, well, who is it that's going to help us tame the problem of prostate cancer? We knew we needed to represent all men, not just those on the football pitch. And we needed to give these men um, and, and people who were going to help solve the problem, under, we needed to get them to understand that prostate cancer is a real and present threat and it could affect anybody. So we needed to demonstrate that these men at risk are dads, brothers, lovers, sons, and we needed to show that we were representing all men. So our recent TV campaign, Men We Are With You, um, set out to connect with our audiences on this much more emotional level. So we've uh, featured authentic footage of men, some men with prostate cancer themselves, um, and we hope that we've uh, done quite a good job. So we'll, you can be the judge of that. We'll show you now. What a piece of work is a man. <laughs> How noble in reason. How infinite in faculty. In form and moving. How express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world. The paragon of animals. I love you, man. And yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? So, interestingly, in the creative development process, the ad agency that we were working with really wanted to depict really great heroic acts of men to show them in their, uh, you know, in their wonder um, so that it would cut through and it would create a really impactful ad. But we knew that we had to tread a very, very fine line. If we only showed images of men doing these incredible acts, then what does that say about us? Does it say that we're only here and we only think that, you know, the alpha males are the ones that are worth saving? You know, what about my dad and our brothers? You know, so we really needed to listen to what our audience were telling us and we needed to make sure that we were representing men um, in a very, very relatable way and thinking about what role they had to play within the family and in the network. 
Um, and we're seeing really, really positive initial results. It's still early days, but we haven't had any backlash. Um, like I was asked on, on the panel, you know, have we had a, a, a negative response at all? And actually, it's been overwhelmingly positive. People are seeing themselves, they're recognising um, the men in their lives when they're seeing this, um, this content. Um, we've been voted the most improved uh, charity brand on YouGov's polling index um, for 2019, so we're making huge strides. And critically, despite not having a call to action in this campaign, 73% of people who had seen it wanted to do something positive, whether that was find out more about the disease, talk to somebody about prostate cancer, or for uh, another important factor for us is to donate. So um, we're seeing good results. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So just one area um, of norm change um, and changing the way in which we understand men and masculinities in this case. Um, so now we'll move to Veronica. She's the WHO team leader um, in gender equity and human rights. Um, and um, she's worked in many countries, especially in India. Um, and she leads a, a team of experts um, around gender equality and ensuring no one is left behind. And Veronica's going to, to talk a bit about how WHO, as a big institution, um, is thinking about gender and thinking about gender norms and how you change institutions like this, uh, which is very challenging, um, and she'll have some reflections on that. Thank you, Veronica. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. And the speakers have been fantastic. It's, uh, it's quite an honor to be on this panel and to be amidst all of you. Um, I'm going to divide this short talk in four sections. I was asked to respond to the Lancet series. Um, and I will focus on a few of the recommendations. And then I'll talk a bit about um, the strategic shifts that we're making at WHO um, in our focus on gender and health and our challenges and opportunities. So one of the recommendations focusing on the, the, fifth, uh, the fifth paper was on data, was on um, focusing on health outcomes, on the SDG3 targets, and um, de disaggregating data. And so that gives me an opportunity to market a little bit our um, the World Health Statistics report online. I have a couple copies here. For the first time ever, we disaggregated by sex. There are 11 indicators um, that we were able to do that with. And we also did, we had some, de we have some definitions on gender and uh, some gender analysis. There are additional 23 indicators that could be disaggregated by sex, which are not, and there's actually no excuse for us not to. Uh, some indicators obviously cannot be disaggregated by sex. But um, just to highlight a few things, and, and also in the, in the global monitoring report on UHC that was launched in September at the, at the UN General Assembly with the political declaration, we had a chapter on gender and we did the same thing, we disaggregated by sex. And what, what, what did we find? We found that actually uh, maternal mortality is decreasing. We've done a good job with the MD MDGs. There's still a long ways to go, especially in, in lower middle income countries. One in 41 women are still dying of, um, and, in, of child, in childbirth. So we have a lot to do there. But as we're seeing that decrease, we're seeing um, the, that men are not doing so well. Twice as many men have t uh, or die of TB. Um, 
uh, cardiovascular disease. So there's NCDs. Now there's a lot of debate on how much is biological, how much is social. We need more research. We need better understandings of all of these. But this is something that we feel masculinity, harmful masculinities, risk behaviors, um, uh, we, we need to focus a little bit. We need to focus more on that. So this brings me to, to some of the shifts that we're making. One is that we're not looking at gender in isolation from other um, inequalities, whether it's wealth quintile, whether it's uh, ethnicity, it's the language of intersectionality. Now, this is not easy to do. We need new methods, mixed methods to, to start examining this. Um, and I can be happy to tell you more about what we're doing there. But, but the second um, shift that we're making is looking at, not looking at um, gender within vertical programs like traditionally we've looked at reproductive health violence against women and we've had to that there was a real need to focus on that in the last on in the last 25 years but now with the new data emerging with the SDGs we really need to look at non-communicable diseases we need to take deeper look at the health system um, and how it's gendered the other thing is looking at gender in a relational context. Women are in relationship with men, whether they're their husbands, sons, brothers, employers, the state. Um, and so looking at men and masculinity and looking not just men as a monolith or women as a monolith, but um, really looking at how marginalized men, whether it's from a certain ethnic group, poor men, um, are at, at greater risk. And then also broadening the focus to gender diverse populations, LGBTI, and not just within the context of HIV. But if you're looking at the data, mental health, suicide, um, there's, um, there's a lot more that needs to be done. And then, as I said, health systems, uh, universal health coverage, looking at women as not only users of health um, services, but providers and the gender dimensions there, um, and the unpaid care work. And then the, the, the last thing is the area of mainstreaming. And this is where I have a point of contention with the fifth paper um, that highly, that criticizes monitoring. Monitoring process indicators provides an opportunity like Global Health 5050 to hold us to account. WHO, for example, um, uh, reports to the World Health Assembly every year on, on process indicators. The governments like to see what, what, what we're doing, what actions, that, what activities we're doing. Now, for the first time ever, we're monitoring, we have gender equity and human rights criteria that we're going to measure against each of these 42 outputs. Now, this can be an easy checkmark e exercise, but we're hoping that, um, or we're working towards something that will have um, a lot of accountability built into it. Global Health 5050, I'll come back to that again. I know a lot of those Beltway Bandit, Washington DC based international um, programs. It is shaking them up. Uh, and um, women in the organization are bringing it up to senior management and things are changing. So I really, I, I don't think it's it's just, it's. it's it, if I can, if if I may look back, what we what we have always said is that we need to look at impact, which is what's the recommendation. And I still believe we need to look at impact, but I don't think we should stop monitoring um, process indicators for these for these reasons. So, what are some of our challenges and opportunities? I think this vertical this this 
focus, and public health does this, it's the nature of public health, is to, to really zero in in vertical programs. And so there's been an, a lot of attention on violence against women and reproductive health. This is a good thing, and we should not, and I will reiterate this, we should not let up the fight. We need to continue that. But what has happened is that the, the focus of all of the gender and health work has gone into just those areas. So if you talk to to any member states or policymakers and you say gender, they'll immediately focus just on that area and it, 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 it relieves the other areas, everything from AMR to to health systems and non-communicable diseases to, um, to avoid having to, to, to cast a lens on this. So I think this, this, this focus on this has, has been a positive thing, but it has a, been problematic also. And then I think um, there's a backlash now, this, this women-only uh, kind of pushback. I think there's a lot of anxiety for us trying to open the floodgates to open um, open up to new population groups, new to new players, um, has has led us. Has, has, what has happened, I think, has become a debate that has become ideological, and then a strong investment in an ideological debate doesn't allow us to have to bring in different voices and to theorize, to bring in social theory, feminist theory, um, and to expand um, the whole field. And then I think another challenge is, is policymakers. I think they're slower to change. I think they're open, they're interested, but they have um, commitments from, from their constituency in a certain area um, that is in a maybe vertical program area. So it, that, that they've been um, slower to change even though they're sympathetic. And then resources has always been a problem. Resources don't really flow in the field of gender. It, re re it flows in, in program areas. So for me, what I'm looking into, and I'm getting into the opportunities, is new players. I'm not asking for people in violence against women and reproductive health to jump ship and start working on prostate cancer and masculinity or gun violence and masculinity, which we desperately need some, some work around that, to continue that work, but I need new, we need new players, we need new voices, we need new ways of thinking about this and, and resources to flow in gender in these areas. So another opportunity, I think, is the, da the disaggregating data. I think it's, it's, it's at least at WHO, it's got getting people to really think and to think differently what's really going on here. And so a lot of discussions are happening in WHO and I think within movements. Another opportunity, like I said, keep up the violence against women and SRHR work. I can't say that enough. The women's movement is starting to think. There's, there's been an almost, um, and they've been so successful in changing law and policy around reproductive rights. They've been amazing. And in the field of public health, there haven't been that many movements. I would say reproductive rights, violence against women, and, um, and in, in the HIV um, access to, to medicine. Um, but I, they're starting to question and they're starting to look more broadly. And a lot of this has come out through the, the, the political declaration on UHC. There was a gender and UHC alliance that was formed and started looking at the health system more broadly for all of um, women's health issues. And then the climate change um, movement, they're starting to get on board, board with that. So the, 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 the feminist movement, I've seen some of these groups and discussions I've had with them 
are a bit more agile than policymakers, where they have to lead a whole constituency. They're, they're able to have internal debates and push the envelope. And a lot of it is because new players are coming in. And that's another opportunity. Young people are starting to, to ask questions and start um, jumping into the debate, as well as LGBT um, groups, men's groups, um, and um, grassroots groups. Um, I think another opportunity are leaders, many of whom are on this panel, the, the work that The Lancet is doing, um, Richard Horton is taking the lead uh, together with Jocelyn, is a huge opportunity. There's, uh, there's, it's difficult to bring gender resolutions at the UN General Assembly or at the World Health Assembly because it is so fraught. When you bring women together with sex, it is it's problematic. So there's different ways that we need to look at creative ways in changing policies and making, um, influencing policymakers. And so I think there's opportunities with these leaders. Um, and then I think with some of the, with, with the, with the SDGs, it's starting to open up as, as, as Sarah was saying, new conversations with a leave no one behind agenda of which gender is central, but not only a part. And, of course, I think with our mainstreaming approach, with the criteria that we have now against our 42 indicators, um, will 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 bring a lot of opportunities and debates to to all our 191 member states. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Very very rich panel um, presentations. Um, and thank everyone very much. Um, so I'm going to open the floor for questions. Um, if you're online, please do send in your questions. This is your chance to ask the editor of The Lancet uh, <laughs> what he's up to, and your chance to ask our researchers and policy people on the platform. Um, so um, over to you. It's a question. Three questions here, so one here. Yes. Thank you. Thanks very much to the panel for and the fascinating say who you are. insights. Yes, I will. So I'm Ebony Riddell Bam, but I work for Orchid Project. We work globally to end female genital cutting. So I wanted to highlight that obviously this is a practice which is a prime example of something that's underpinned by negative gender norms, which has an impact, yes, on the health of women and girls, but entire communities and nations. There will be no gender equality until we end this practice. I wanted to particularly bring up a specific trend, which is medicalization of female genital cutting and mutilation, which is something we're seeing as a growing trend and something which is incredibly worrying. So. I'm, I've got a kind of request to the panel that how can we work together in the spirit of partnership across academia. I know that WHO have been doing an amazing job of working on medicalization and highlighting how we can work with health professionals to end this practice. But how can we bring the data out? How can we work collaboratively at community level? How can we obviously engage health workers directly to end this practice? Um, and just to cite some specific countries, we know in Egypt, Sudan, Nigeria, and Indonesia where there's birth packages offered where infant girls can be cut. So we really need to work strategically across regions on this issue. It's not affecting one specific region, it's happening globally. So yes, we're really keen to work collaboratively across sectors to end medicalization of FGC. Thank you. Great, thank you. We're going to collect a few questions. So there's a question here. <coughs> Do I need this slide? 
Um, oh, thank you, guys. That was just amazing. Thank you very much to all of you. Um, the 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 film there, particularly, uh, was particularly moving. And I guess it's just I, I can't. I'm not sure I can articulate what I want to say entirely. But I might ask Richard. I guess if he still finds that he's slightly defensive when um, people refer to men as if they are a uniform group like as the guy as the people in uh, the leaders in london today are because and i wondered whether richard feels like defensive about that about being this group being called men and as if men uh, so that that i There's another question at the back here. Hi, I'm Saloni. I'm a PhD student from the University of Cambridge, and I work on women's mental health in India. And um, Sarah, what you said about health being a good um, non-threatening entry point for gender issues, that really resonated with me. But I think the danger with health discourse is that you run the risk of medicalizing or individualizing women's problems. And I think in mental health, in psychiatry, there's a problematic history of this. Um, and I've done some ethnographic work with women in slums in India. And I've seen that their problems may present as anxiety or depression, but uh, the root cause of them often is social norms and um, exposure to violence. And I don't see a recognition of that reflected in our, our national policy discourse around mental health or even in the international global mental health discourse. And so I just wondered um, whether you could say something about how um, a health discourse, uh, how you can use a health discourse um, consciously, I guess, and prevent against uh, medicalization of women's problems. Great. Thank you. This, we'll take this one other question behind you, then. Great. Thanks. Um, my name is Shelley Lees. I work at London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine. I'm a medical anthropologist doing research on gender-based violence. I'm also doing um, a lot of research around epidemic response. And I just wanted to ask, um, Sarah, you talked about this independent monitoring system, um, these global health organizations, and I'd be interested to know how many humanitarian organizations are involved because um, we are attempting to do some research around um, sexual abuse in the sector, both within the organizations but within um, within the communities where humanitarian action happens. Um, but it seems a very difficult area to, <laughs> very sensitive area to address. So it would be really helpful to know if you've had any success in monitoring any of these organisations. Thank you. Great. Okay, so we'll, we'll, um, we'll take another round probably after this, but um, I'll start at the end of the panel here, if there's <laughs> any responses. <laughs> uh, on the men question. Uh, <coughs> I don't mind being referred to as a man, um, <laughs> as part of a group. Um, that's okay. Uh, it's very interesting, actually. We're going through a process at the Lancet of, I mean, a massive culture change. So we have an inclusion and diversity task force at the Lancet, and we're looking at... Um, uh, 
gender um, balance of men and women on um, uh, on our editorial boards, amongst peer reviewers, authors, and so on. Uh, and in the leadership of the Lancet, I'm a man. Um, and we have 18 journals, and we have more women as editors-in-chief of those journals than men, so that's on the surface, good. But there's still a lot of feeling that um, the Lancet is a, um, a concern, that the Lancet has a very masculine culture. Um, and, th and you're absolutely right, there are moments where I feel... Um, defensive, and it's interesting to analyse your feelings when you have that when one has that conversation. And sometimes people say things in meetings. Um, uh, there was International Men's Day recently, um, and uh, we ran an editorial about men's health. And in the discussion at our leader meeting, um, uh, editorial meeting about that um, editorial, uh, somebody's raised the subject of International Men's Day, and somebody in the group said, well, every day is International Men's Day. <laughs> and, uh, and I can remember feeling um, a little bit yeah. pissed off about that because uh, I didn't feel... You know, and that was my defensiveness. So, and I recognise that that's my reaction to being challenged, that we live in a, masculine, a very masculinized world, and I, was, I felt an emotional response to that because I didn't feel that was me, but I'm part of that system. So I think we are all struggling with, this, with, with some deep challenges here, and that's interesting to observe. Thank you. So I recognize them. Great, thank you. Did you want to comment on anything else? No, that's okay. I'll stick with the men. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay, so I won't comment on the men because I think that, that was actually a really uh, thoughtful, thoughtful response to a really good question. Um, I, so, sort of going backwards, the the GH fifty fifty independent monitoring. So we've got two hundred organisations that we look at, um, including the Lancet last mm -hmm. year. <laughs> Not, you're off the hook this year. <laughs> um, it includes about 50 NGOs, some of which are um, in the humanitarian space. They have to be in the health space as well for us to be um, in including them. And uh, to, to be honest, what, what we looked at last year was um, their internal workplace policies. And, and I, I know this, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want this to be misunderstood, um, but one of the things that has become very clear over the past couple of years, looking at the, the workplace policies of all these organisations, um, is that policies for gender equality and promoting career opportunities equally for women um, are much better in the private sector than, the pub, than, than in the NGO sector. Th but it's just policies. We can't tell you anything about the culture inside an organisation. You, know, mm. you, you just talked about a masculine culture. Academia is very frequently a masculine culture. But we have good policies in academia too. But the policies within the humanitarian and NGO sector are not, ma many times are not as good on paper as they could and should be um, for their own staff. Mm. We have not looked at issues around sexual abuse perpetrated by, by the 
employees of those organizations. But I must say, one of the things that we've noticed over the three years that we've been doing it, and I think you kind of alluded to this, Veronica, is that um, organizations are quite responsive to external evaluation. And so when we did the first report, there was very little mention of gender um, and, and in, in a lot of the NGOs and the public-private partnerships. And when we went back a year later, they were actually using the text that we had written, which was taken from WHO, to say, this is what gender is. What I understood happened last... Or, uh, th there was a big DFID meeting on sexual abuse in... Um, the NGO sector wasn't there, and did it? Did DFID say they would stop funding unless charities uh, NGOs took this on board? That's really clearly now reflected when you go to the websites of the NGOs, which you, that's a big change for us to see compared to last year. Is that if you because we monitor this through websites? If we go to the websites of these 50 NGOs now, they all talk about safeguarding policies in a way that they weren't doing two years ago. And I think that that to me that that comes up with two things, which I think don't answer your question, but it's <laughs> kind of answer a different question. One is that organisations can change, as we as we've talked about um, throughout this series as well, but. I think, in, coming from academia, where we've had Athena Swan, money makes organisations change. The threat of financial... Um, remo removal of finances is a huge motivator in the equality stakes, is, is all I can say. The conditionality... And that, that's, to me, that's the difference of moving from monitoring to accountability. Accountability, one of the key concepts of accountability, as you all know, is you have to have remedial action. It's not just about can you monitor things. And the, the money part of it is what's making organi many organizations actually shift their own practices, is the threat of having their money taken away. Um, I'll leave it at that. Any comments? Um, I will quickly pick up on the men question. I think it's the only one that I'm qualified to answer. Um, I'll comment on, certainly. But um, it's interesting to me because I've had to defend um, us talking about men as a group of people. Um, when we first started developing the recent campaign, it was on the back of the, uh, of the Me Too movement, and uh, Gillette had recently come out with their advert, which was um, trying to present men in a different light, and got a huge backlash um, in terms of being patronising and not doing it very well. So, And we also, it was at the same time where we were thinking about um, Ex, uh, releasing our new brand philosophy which is men we are with you and we had a big discussion about whether or not we should use men in the title because there are people who do have prostates who don't, don't identify as uh, men and we consciously did keep the words men we are with you in that phrase because we still have a long way to go and the majority of people that we need to communicate with are men and we need to make sure that, that we could cut through with that but we consciously made sure that we work with uh, trans women groups uh, to make sure that we've got information available uh, uh, to you know, a diverse group of people who uh, need to talk about uh, their prostate and understand about what prostate cancer means for them and their health. So we're consciously providing the right information, but in our big mass communications, 
talking about men and defending men um, is important to us. Do you have any comments? Not at, not at the moment. Okay. Um, did you want to come back on the FGM question? Uh, um, just very briefly on the F F FGC, FGM um, question, and, and I... I know um, that uh, yeah, RHR in WHO has, has had a, an incredibly powerful program against harmful practices, including um, FGM and F FGC, and clearly are totally, you know, the normative guidance is there is no place for medical intervention. It, 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 it cannot be medicalized. It's just not... Um, a, 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 a practice that should that medics should be involved with at all. It's very clear WHO guidance on on that. But I was going to say, from a gender perspective, I always think that actually around um, norm change, that that the, that there are some really beautifully successful examples of involving men in families and communities to push for the non-acceptance of FGM, FGC, that have been very successful and are, are, are a great example of, of if we see gender as something that, that is everybody's issue and get men to raise voices against practices that harm women, it can be, it, it, it raises the, the, the profile of the issue in a way um, that, that's very, very positive. So I would say, yes, you know, in terms of partnership, it's about partnering across the whole of society um, rather than seeing this as something that's just a women's issue. That's exactly what we do. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Great. Um, so I'll take another round of questions, and we have some online questions as well. A question here. I hope you've all heard what I was saying. And Paho for the Americas has recently produced a report on um, masculinities and health, which I thought, again, was very impressive. Uh, but do you think that that's the best approach, or should we be talking much more, as I say, about, about gender and health as, as the best way forward? Peter? There was another question here. I'll just, there was, um, so some online questions. Again, on the masculinity issue, 
What is the panel's view on the discourse around harmful masculinity and toxic masculinity in regards to a strategy to advance men's health? Is it harmful to our efforts? Um, a, a question, could the research being done with frontline organisations be explored more? In, and in what sense are they stuck in the MDG era? Um, another question, um, has the prostate cancer um, campaign influenced the sector in a wider way and did you use behavioural norms methods or insights in rebranding? Um, and then a question about some examples of um, organisational change or programmes that have actually changed gender norms. So four questions there for the panel. Um, and given that we are coming to the end of our time, I'll also ask the panel to respond and maybe sum up a, a little bit any other thoughts. So I'll start at the other end this time. Okay. Do you want to go first? Um, okay. Uh, to answer Peter Baker's question, I would lean... I, I, I think there's pros and cons of, you know, each approach. And I think PAHO and the Euro region got a lot out of... got a lot of mileage um, in their approach. Um, so I am loath to criticize it. What I would like us to do, and we've been bantering around the idea of having a global report on gender and health, um, because it provides an opportunity to also um, shed light on the relational aspects. So there are actually some ways that men and women share um, kinds of discrimination um, that we need to look at, and some that are unique, and some affect each other. So like, for example, if men's life expectancy is four and a half years less than women, then how does that affect women um, in, in the family? Within the, so again, taking a systems lens, looking at, this, at the family, the, 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 who becomes the caretaker, the caregiver, the, and, and often unpaid? Who is burdened with the out-of-pocket payments and gets Im impoverished? So it 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 we might by looking taking a, a, a lens at looking at systems um, have different kinds of approaches that involves everybody. So I, I think I mean there's several examples around that 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 we that we that to to, to focus on gender rather than. Um, and bring in health around that, I think, um, would be a very interesting approach. Um, around some of the mass masculinity issues, I think a lot of NGOs have answers, have been Promundo, there's, and, and, and your group have been working on this and have come up with a lot of um, solutions. I, I think they need to be embedded in a kind of feminist grounding, women's empowerment, and looking at men and men, how men are marginalized vis-a-vis -vis that way. Not all men are, um, um, have the same levels of privilege um, as one homogenous group, and so that needs to be unpacked more. And how does that affect women? How does it affect the community? And so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So I, I, I would actually ask um, NGOs to and, and research organizations to look at that. I think, last thing I would say, within WHO, I think a lot, of, a lot of men and women want us to come forward and start looking at this more deeply, but are afraid to, because it's not politically correct. Um, and so I think we need to um, make spaces for the conversations and um, you know, allow the different voices to, 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 
to come through um, in, in, in a safe space. So I think organizationally, institutionally, we need to do the work. And we need just good examples. I'll, I'll just say one thing. For example, when we were looking at, at barriers with adolescents in, in the Afro region, normally when we look at gender, we look at women. Um, but we're also looking at young boys. And um, in some of these countries, there's drug addiction problems. And the health system is, is rejecting them. And imagine, say, take well, any country where they're going to go. So that's why there's a bigger system problem, structural issues, if we don't start examining these within the health system. And so I think we need to, to, to look at boys in the same way that we look at girls with their unique problems issues. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, Prostate Cancer UK uh, did lots of uh, uh, research before we rebranded and that led us to uncover um, how we were communicating with men and how we were part of the problem. Um, we did a really interesting bit of work uh, that looked at our internal discourse and that showed how we were writing and even communicating internally to each other um, in ways that um, was perpetuating the problem and so that helped us to understand how we should communicate in the future and how we should uh, rebrand and develop a much more direct approach. Um, and then recently the campaign that we developed and that, that is um, live now was very much rooted in insight, not with this expectation that we were going to change huge behaviours but we wanted to get people to simply care about men and the, and the problem that pro is prostate cancer and understand the scale of the disease. Only by doing that will we start being able to solve some of the problems around a very complex disease that we need to fund. So, you know, we're in the business of saving men's lives, so we have to celebrate them. And, you know, we, we need to make sure there's much of that um, research has been based on getting people to that place of um, caring about men in quite a difficult um, environment. So the toxic, uh, toxic masculinity doesn't really help us. You know, we want to be presenting men as we know and we love them and not all men are, are, are toxic. So we have to make sure that we're, <laughs> that we're uh, representing those that we, that, we, um, that we believe, you know, have a real role to play within society. So um, that's why we focus on the, the brothers and the dads and the, and the relationships that they have with us. Great, thank you. Sorry. Um, sure. So I'll, I'll um, just address that question about stuck in an MDG era. Yeah. Um, and I, I say that on the basis of the, the data that, again, we look at with Global Health 5050, where we've, we've focusing again on the 50 or so NGOs um, that are in our sample. And to be in our sample, an organisation has to have a presence in at least three countries. And when we reviewed the activities of those NGOs by health programs that they focus on, the vast, vast, vast majority of their action was in the um, was was in the uh, MDG activities. So they focus on the health of mothers, the health of children, and some aspects of infectious disease, predominantly um, HIV, TB, and malaria. And this, you know, the, the, these are the big NGOs out there. These are the big recipients of a large proportion of the development assistance for health that goes into the NGO sector. They are predominantly still focusing 
on um, on on MDG priorities. There was almost we didn't find a single NGO, for example, that was doing work on anti-smoking activities or um, NGOs that were working on working substantively on um, unhealthy diets or air pollution. There are national NGOs doing that, but in terms of the big NGOs that you think of when you think of the NGOs working in the health sector, they are, are kind of picking what we considered to be really the low-hanging fruit of the MDG era and hadn't yet shifted into the SDG era. And I think that then builds into to the, the part that, that we analysed it at as that, that men miss out from, from that attention. We didn't find a single NGO um, we will do this time because we're now including ProMundo, but we didn't find a single NGO that was just working on the health of men um, amongst those 50. There were a very small number that worked a little bit on the health of men with respect to um, TB, for example, or, um, but, but really nothing um, substantive. Um, and then just, just in terms of an example of a program that's changed gender norms, my, my favourite example actually is around, and I think this builds into the question around toxic masculinity, which is also a phrase that we, we certainly ban from all, all our publications, um, is, is around uh, promoting the, the positive aspects of um, masculinity and caregiving and kept the, the responsibility that fathers have for their families. Um, and this was a, a, a set of, of, of gender norms and ideas that was picked up on um, by some programs working to reduce the exposure of pregnant women to fathers who smoke. Um, and just telling men that they're doing bad things and they've got a toxic masculinity by smoking funnily enough, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't stop them smoking. But programs in Australia and Canada that really honed in on the notion of responsible fatherhood and protection of the health of the yet-to-be-born child had a much more positive impact on reducing pregnant women's exposure to second-hand smoke. Well, one thing I've learned is we need to do a lot more on uh, men's health um, in The Lancet. <coughs> um, we tend to, we've done an awful lot on women's health and maternal health, but we haven't actually had a series on men's health or a commission on men's health. Maybe we need to, Sarah, you and I need to talk more about, uh, about how we're going to address men in our new commission. I mean, on, on Peter's question about uh, focusing on gender or uh, specific issues, there's no one right answer to that, is there? I mean, a pluralistic approach should, should surely be the right way. Um, for example, in this series, we, we focus on the fact that um, some women are, you know, women are more exposed to household air pollution, and so they have that particular exposure, but there are more, more men who die or are disabled in road traffic injuries. Now, I would want to say you shouldn't have, one shouldn't have a campaign on road traffic injuries and preventing those. Um, and if you subsume that totally into a gender discussion, you might lose some of the specificity. So, you, you, you know, I, I think a pluralistic approach would be um, much better. Toxic masculinity, nobody wants to talk about it, but let's face it, there's a lot of it about. Um, and we should acknowledge it. 
um, and try and understand it and study it, and uh, and we don't. And I think one of the um, one of the issues that we don't address uh, very well in global health. Um, in fact, it's often shut out of global health discussions is mental health. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see a lot more discussion about mental health and men. Um, I, think that, uh, I think that that issue tends to get um, sidelined very much in our discussions. So I'll leave it there because I can see our time is yeah. closing. Great. So um, I think we'll uh, end the panel discussion um, there. Um, I think it's been a really rich discussion and um, I certainly thank all the panellists for coming. Um, there is a growing interest in gender norms um, and um, in the last five, six years we've seen the development sector engaging with this and what it actually means to change people's behaviours and attitudes and therefore have some sustainable change. Um, you can change you can change a behaviour or you can change an attitude, but you can, you can say, I don't beat my wife, and then you go home and beat your wife. You've actually got to change both behaviours and attitudes for sustainable change in the long term, and also always be on the guard against um, backlash. Um, it's been a really interesting discussion, a lot of discussion about men and masculinities. Um, I, I was reflecting on whether I should comment on, on men and masculinities at all, but I'll, I'll just quote Grayson Perry that Sarah had at a talk. Um, and he's, he's, he said being a man was like, like being a fish in water. Um, it's great. What's the problem? Um, <laughs> so walking around and everything looks great. Uh, but I actually don't think that just refers to men. I think that refers to any of us who are in our comfort zones or in a world that we've shaped around us. And the challenge is actually getting out of that box and understanding how other people live and how other people see the world. And I think that's a challenge for all of us. Um, this talk um, uh, will be online. It'll be available on the ODI website. We'll link it also to the Align platform, the platform on changing gender norms, and it'll also be linked, I think, to the Lancet website. So if you want to share it um, or look at any of the other publications, you'll find all of those links online. Please share the Align work and the Lancet's research on gender norms with your organisations in your networks. Um, and uh, use all the forthcoming opportunities to spread the word about the work, good work that's being done on changing gender norms. Um, and, of course, uh, please follow the, the Twitter thread if you're interested in any discussion that's going on. Thank you to everyone who's been online. Um, we'll check up on how long you stayed, because we can see. Um, but we actually don't know who you are, but we, do, we can see how long you've stayed. I hope you've enjoyed the talk. Thank you to... Um, all of our panelists, and thank you to you here in the room for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.